This is Dr. Chuck Betters. This resource is entitled Abandoned But Not Forgotten. And we know that there are many of you who are suffering and hurting and experiencing great pain that comes or emanates from the past. And we want to give you an opportunity to listen to a story today that is going to bless your heart on the whole issue of abandonment. Sharon, why don't you tell us who is with us today and give us a little bit of information about him. Yes, and we're so glad for those who are listening today. And I'm so excited that Dr. Bob Peterson is in the studio with us. Dr. Peterson has an amazing life journey. He has served as pastor of several churches and is presently the senior pastor of Covenant Church in Naples, Florida. He served also as the East Coast president of Master Media International, which is a very intriguing ministry, the, the world's largest ministry to film and television executives. He is internationally known as a master storyteller and speaker and is in high demand uh, for him to share his gifts and the message that he has. But of course, and I like this the best about Bob, is that he is the husband of Joyce and the father of Rachel and the grandfather of May, and those are his greatest pleasures and joys in life. You know, one of the things, Sharon, years ago, many years ago, when we came to Naples, we visited this church, and it was a tiny church at the time, and the building was sitting on what is now a parking lot. And I remember when we came back years later after experiencing our first visit here to see this amazing church, this amazing structure, this amazing edifice, and then to come in and see and experience the the preaching and the teaching of God's Word uh, through Bob. And obviously, his ministry here has counted over the years for a lot of the success by God's grace of this wonderful church. And uh, Bob, we were here the Sunday you announced that at the end of this year, you're going to retire. And I know you're going to be busier than you ever were before. But uh, you appear to be a man who in the pulpit has it all together. Uh, you're a strong, gifted communicator, a fine expositor of the word. We enjoy every time you're preaching to hear what you have to say, especially centered around the gospel of our Savior, Jesus. But I know that uh, you have a story to tell. So why don't we begin with where you are today? What's happening today? Where are you going from here after your, your last day here at, at the church? Tell us a little bit about what your plans are. Well, I'm not going to retire, Chuck. I'm going to refire. I think all of us have to always think in terms of my best days are not behind me, but they're ahead of me. I believe as a Christian, we have to believe that God has more for us in the future. And, and the best way, in fact, to get past the past is to look to the future with, with great hope. So I'm very excited that we're going to starting an organization called The Power of Story. We believe the story is the best way to inform, to inspire, to transform. And we, we will be, um, I will be writing a book for Tyndale Publishers. I'm in the process of that right now called, called The One Year Amazing Story Book, The Story Devotional. 365 stories of famous people. We hope to resurrect the old Paul Harvey rest of the story. We're very excited. These are stories with surprise endings with, and, um, 
and then we'll be doing radio, we'll be doing television. Uh, we do our tours, about four or five tours, uh, world tours every year uh, to, to, to holy spots. I'll be doing a blog, podcast, moving to, to um, Washington, D.C. to be near my my attorney daughter, uh, my naval seal son-in-law, and uh, my and most importantly, my granddaughter and another granddaughter on the way. So we're looking forward to a rich and full future. How did you come up with the idea of developing this storytelling ministry? How did how did when did that happen for you, and how did it happen? Well, as a child, going through a very painful time, I found my escape in stories. I rode into battle with Sir Galahad. I floated down the Mississippi River and smoked a corncob pipe with Huckleberry Finn. I went 20,000 leagues under the sea with Captain Nemo. Stories were where, where I escaped. Uh, like Alice uh, going through the rabbit hole into Wonderland. And for just a short time, I could get away from the pain and struggling of my life. And so I fell totally in love with stories whether stories are on the printed page, on the celluloid film, of, uh, uh, on, on the movie house. I love stories. I love storytellers. And over the years, I became a storyteller. And, um, and so I believe that Jesus was the greatest storyteller ever and told the greatest story ever told. And when people struggled with issues in the things that he was and the things he taught, he responded by telling a story. Why are you hanging out with those sinners, those, those rejects, those misfits? Well, let me tell you a story about a, a shepherd who lost a sheep. In case you didn't get it, let me tell you the story about a, about a woman who lost a coin. And just in case you didn't get those first two stories, let me tell you about a, a man who lost his son. And powerful. Jesus was the master storyteller. And I, can't, I think story is the greatest way to communicate and I want to teach a whole generation of people how to tell the story of their faith, the story of their family, uh, uh, nonprofits, how to tell the story of what they're about so that they can recruit. And, and um, I want to teach pastors, youth directors, people who are telling the greatest story ever told, how to tell it well. My, my mentor, Dr. Rayburn at Covenant Seminary, used to say, men, the greatest sin in the world is to take the greatest story in the world and make it boring, confusing, or convoluted. You say that uh, when you were a child, uh, the idea of storytelling, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, it was kind of a, a, a release for you, uh, kind of a way in which to cope? Yeah, it was, it was where I escaped. I escaped in a world of books. I was a vociferous reader. I, I, I was reconnected with my sister after 50 years. And she remembered something I didn't remember. She said, you always had your head in a book. You were always somewhere reading a book. Life was so unbearable for me in reality that I escaped. But stories became more than an escape. They became the thing that nurtured me, the thing that fed my soul. And then my imagination worked overtime. I was, I was alone a lot as a kid. So I created worlds of my own where I, could, where I could be what people told me I couldn't be, where I could do what people told me I couldn't be. And, you know, the imagination is the greatest nation of all. And I think people that are hurting, people that are going through difficulty, often find themselves in the world of imagination because the world of reality is often too painful to face. You wrote the book Desert Crossings. Why did you write that book? 
Well, I wrote the book because uh, it was a metaphor to me of my own life. And I, I love the stories of the Bible, the people like Moses, people like Peter, like David. And what I've discovered in the Bible is that everyone who ever amounted to anything in God's, in God's redemptive history had a desert experience. Prophets, as Moses teaches us, are not created in the palace. Moses lived for 40 years in a palace. And then he tried to effect a revolution to set his people free, and he failed. God put him on a desert for 40 years. And it was on the desert that he was prepared to be a prophet. It was on the desert that John the Baptist became a prophet. It was in the desert that Elijah became a prophet. It was in the desert where Jesus, after he was uh, uh, set apart for his ministry, went into the desert. History is full of great men, Abraham Lincoln and others, and every one of them without fail, uh, from Winston Churchill to, to, well, almost anybody, to myself, to you, have had a desert experience. And it's the desert that prepares you. Moses spent 40 years on the desert. I don't believe that God ever puts us on a desert that he doesn't want to use us to take other people across the same desert. Moses, for 40 years, wasted his life. I mean, you think about it, he was 40 years old, the prime of life when he tried to affect the revolution. He was the prince of Egypt. At age 80, he had spent the last 40 years taking care of sheep. And as you know, sheep aren't great conversationalists. And he lost all of his diplomatic schools, skills. He lost his youthfulness. He lost everything. And God comes to him and says, now I'm ready to use you. And he argues with God, no, I, I'm nobody. I'm 80 years old. I'm nobody. And God says, no, I'm ready to use you. And what's really cool is those 40 wasted years from age 40 to 80, Moses was learning every, every desert mountain, every star, every watering hole, every river, every Bedouin tribe. Moses knew that desert like the palm of his hand, and God was preparing him to take two million people across the same desert. What a beautiful picture. I'm, I'm just so encouraged by what you're sharing right now, and I just resonate with it. What was your desert? You've talked about your childhood, that it was, you, you wanted to escape, you needed to escape because it was unbearable at times. What Tell us a little bit about that. Well, my story begins with a mother who went looking for love in all the wrong places. And she found herself pregnant at age 15. She had, she had been with so many guys, she didn't know who the father of her child was. Went home and told her stepfather that she was pregnant. He threw her out of the house. She wandered the streets of Bangor, Maine, found her way to a home for unwed mothers. And I was born to this 15-year-old girl. She often referred to me as the no-name boy because she didn't know who my father was. I was left in that home for a few months. She managed to snag a military guy at the nearby Air Force Base and took me out to eastern Washington where he was um, assigned to a base in eastern Washington. For the next uh, six years of, uh, of their marriage, he was either in Germany or in Korea, he traveled. She went looking for love in all the wrong places again, had five more children by five different guys, spent her time in the bars. Uh, sad situation, looking for love. I was the kid who stayed home taking care of my brothers and sisters. Three of us slept at the top of the bed, three at the bottom of the bed. 
every one of us wet the bed at night, uh, which wasn't bad on a winter night, warm for a moment, but then horrible afterwards. She would often be gone for two or three weeks at a time. Uh, and when she came home, it was often worse than when she left. We were hungry, we were naked, we were, we were dirty. Uh, we stole milk off of the back porches of, of homes back in the days when they delivered milk in bottles to the back porches. Uh, we ate ketchup sandwiches. Sometimes we didn't eat at all. But when she came home, it was often worse because she brought her friends home from the bar. And I was sexually molested on several occasions, sodomized. I remember one night I was sodomized while my mom giggled. And I felt dirty and wrong, and she would use me in her sexual play. She would use me to give her pleasure sexually. I was only six years old. And um, I felt dirty. I felt wrong. But then she would pat me on the head and say, you make mommy feel so good. And so I also felt strangely affirmed and strangely good about making mommy feel good. At the same time, I felt bad. And um, one night he came home uh, from the military service. Uh, the man that I thought was my father, who really wasn't my father, he found us naked and dirty. He began to beat her with a belt. She ran out of the house. And that night, the police appeared. And we were parceled out by twos in homes of their friends, uh, who were primarily people who, 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 who they spent time in the taverns with. The first home my sister and I were in, uh, he was an alcoholic, beat his wife constantly, tried to rape my sister. I pulled him off of her. He collapsed and fainted in drunkenness. We cowered in the corner about a year later while he beat his wife to death with a hammer. At that point, the authorities came in. We began our sojourn through the welfare system of Washington State as wards of the state. Uh, the first home we were in was a, was a well, I, I don't want, like to use the word fanatical, overused, but they were a fanatical religious home from a religious sect, uh, very, very strict. When we broke dishes, we ate, they would make us eat out of dog dishes on the floor with the dogs. I remember one day the pastor of the church was there for Sunday dinner, and we ate out of the dog dishes on the floor. To this day, I don't understand how a pastor of a church could watch that happen and not say anything. One home I was in, I went to bed every night until I was 12 years old. Uh, and every night I would pray, God, don't let me wet the bed. And every night I would, I would wake up in the morning with my wet bed, be challenged by my foster parents who were trying to stop me. So I would say I didn't wet the bed. I would put the covers over and climb back in that night into a bed rancid and wet. And, um, and a, one of the mothers tried to, tried to shame me by making a sign that said, this little boy still wets the bed, hanging it around my neck, having me stand out on the porch as other kids went by to school. We lived right next to the school. And after that, I was known as Bobby Bedwetter. When I was in the sixth grade, I had the sociability of a four-year-old. The psychologist of the state psychologist said, I didn't know who I was. I didn't have the capacity to love. I have a report card still to this day on which the teacher wrote, this boy needs to be institutionalized. He will, he, he's a, he will never amount to anything. Uh, I've often thought of, of hanging that and fra framing and hanging it next to my doctoral diploma. Uh, but uh, the greatest fear of my life was coming home at night, moved eight different homes, 
coming home at night after school, the strange car in the driveway with my suitcase packed, ready to go. As bad as those homes were, it was worse to go to another home. I always felt like it was my fault. I felt abandoned. I felt like there's something wrong with me. I'm defective. And that's the childhood I had and um, didn't know how to love, was afraid to love. That's why I escaped. I escaped into other worlds, worlds of stories and um, books and movies and television. We all have uh, scorch marks of divine invasions in our life where God steps in, as he says, our prayer should be, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. I am sure you have along the way stories of those divine invasions where God put his arms around you. You, you know, an interesting thing, Chuck, is that as bad as those homes were, in almost every home, I was taken to some church. In, in one home, a lady who was a Baptist lady who ran a cleaning shop would pick me up every Sunday and take me to church. Now, I had bad experiences in church. I, was, I had a Sunday school teacher who molested me in one church. But I was taken to church. And even this fanatical family took me to church. They took me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Friday night. <laughs> I fell asleep in church. But, but I heard the gospel. Though it didn't connect until I was in college, I heard the gospel. But I remember that day in 1959, all of us were together for one magical summer, all six kids, in the same foster home. And I remember when the adoptive parents came and got my brother, my two brothers. And I remember running down the road, chasing them, their faces glued against the back window on the way to Florida with their new adoptive parents. And I remember screaming, come back, come back, and falling in a potato field on the side of the road and getting up with mud from the tears and the dirt on my face and shaking my fist and screaming at the heavens, if there is a God, and I don't know if there is a God, but there is a God, I hate you. I hate you. But it, we have figured out since it was that same exact week that Mary Peterson, the wife of a salmon fisherman, a guy that owned a fleet of fishing boats in the Northwest, 45 years of age, unable to have children of her own because of, of barrenness from a childhood disease, went to the welfare department and said, I want a boy. They brought out a picture book with pictures of 500 boys and girls who are wards of the state. And the lady said as she handed her the book, now these kids are all damaged goods. It won't be easy. And she said, nevertheless, I want a son. And she looked through those pictures and she saw my picture and said that's the boy I want and so even as I was shaking my fist saying God I hate you the God who had always loved me even when I was in my mother's womb was giving me a mother at that moment is that what you would say to someone who is now an adult and has experienced similar things to what you went through as a child would you just say to them God is in control. God is sovereign. You can trust him. Is, is, that, is that your message? Is that too simplistic? It's not too simplistic. I, I think it's very true. And I look back now and it's very true. But it's not an easy thing to come to. 
And it's certainly not something I would say to somebody that's hurting, that's going through grief or loss or abandonment. I wouldn't come up to them and put my arm around them and say, all things work together for good. God is sovereign. But I can say in this rather objective setting that my experience has been God is wonderfully, wonderfully sovereign. And he puts us, allows us to be put on the desert. By the way, I don't believe God willed what happened to me. I believe what my mother did was against the will of God, and she comes from a dysfunctional line of people. I don't blame her for the way she was. But, and I don't think God willed for the abuse that took place. I think people violated his will. They did evil things to a little boy they shouldn't have done. But God has a wonderful way of working through the evil of people to accomplish his will. And I would tell you now, I wouldn't take a million dollars to go through the experiences I went through, but I wouldn't take a million dollars for the experiences I went through, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Joseph kind of rings a bell as I'm listening to your story. I'm thinking about the story of Joseph and how miserably his childhood sent him to various places he did not want to go. And yet God had a plan, you know, that Genesis 50-20 plan that what you intended for evil, God intended for good, he says to his brothers. When you think about a person who may be listening to this resource right now, who is experiencing great feelings of abandonment, pain, they can't even think about their childhood without welling up in tears and maybe reliving some of the things that took place. I mean, I'm sitting here watching you tell the story, and, and I clearly can see the pain that even telling the story these many years later brings to you. How do you deal with those, with those demonic memories? Well, you know, for me, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day who said he was in a prison ministry and he was going into the prison. and He was going to work with people about, uh, about the healing of memories. And normally when Christians say that, what they mean by that is the erasing of memories. If you can erase your memory, you know, scientists say that there are so many thoughts that go into our mind every second, so many visual images that in, in a lifetime, the amount of data that's entered your mind would amount to a number that's one followed by six miles of zeros. That's, and, and I think there's things in our, and we can't possibly remember those things, but they're there. I believe that we can never get rid, and scientists say, and those who work with neurology say that you can never get rid of a thought. Thoughts remain forever. They're hard-drived in us. What I think God doesn't want us to do, God doesn't ask us to try to erase them. And for so many years, what I did is I closed the door. And I refuse to talk about it. I, my sister, 50 years, you know, I've just been, we have a wonderful relationship now. She tried to get in touch with me and I closed the door. My two brothers, one of them is still alive and he closes the door to, to see because he doesn't want to remember the past. And for years, I didn't want to remember the past. And I lied using a scripture verse from Paul. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I reach for the fore. And I thought that was the spiritual way but I wasn't getting healing. And what I've discovered is I can't change the hardwire. The memories will never go away. But God has given me a new software program, a new way of looking at everything I went through in a totally different way, if that makes sense. And I would say to anybody listening to this that you need 
to come to grips with and deal with the past. You need to think about it, talk about it, find some people you can talk, a counselor or somebody, and you need to rethink everything you went through and see it through a different light or a different prism. At what point did you make that kind of a determination? Well, it happened to me, you know, I did a terrible thing. I Because I grew up, my sister, who was adopted with me, was later disowned by my adopted parents. She's the one I've just recovered a relationship with. She responded very differently than I did. My, my parents that adopted me had a lot messed up dysfunctionalism to deal with. And they were tough parents. And um, my sister said, I want to be loved just the way I am. And I'm going, to, I'm going to act out how I feel. And if you don't love me the way I am, you know, that's, you know, and, and that's how she reacted. I reacted the other way. I said, I want you to love me. I want you to keep me. I don't want you to abandon me. I will be everything you want me to be and then some. Tell me how high to jump and I will jump twice as high. So I became the model student, the, the model son. I became good at everything they wanted me to be good at. What I didn't realize, as I was just as dysfunctional as my sister was, I became the consummate people pleaser. And then I did the worst thing a people pleaser could do. I became a pastor. And now I'm trying to please hundreds of people. God gifted me as a speaker. Every church I was in grew. And as it grew, I began to be concerned about holding the family together as I held my own family together as a child. I wanted to please everybody. I died when I got criticism. I, I fell apart when people got angry and left the church. You know, and so when I was in Houston, Texas, at a very large church, but I went to a church that was three churches ready to split, a big, huge church that had, that had left another church, and, but they had three different visions of a church, and they went through that after I got there. And I was so undone trying to hold that church together, took it all personally when people left. Three churches were started out of that church that I literally collapsed emotionally. I went 48 hours at a time without being able to sleep, was almost in a fetal position of despair. I'd never been depressed before. I was in utter, utter depression. I thought I was going to lose my mind. I thought I was going to lose my pastorate because all those years of trying to please caught up with me. And what happened is that I went to a counselor, a quadriplegic guy who opened up my mind and we began to go back really all the way back to the womb. And I began to reconstruct the way I looked at everything. It was about a three or four year process, and a very painful process, but it, it brought great healing to me. You mentioned your, your adoptive mother. What was it like living in that environment with her? Well, I, the, the good news was the first time I saw her, uh, we were standing on the porch, it was Christmas 1959, she got out of the car, and she, she slipped and slid up to the, to the snow, up to the sidewalk where I was in Soap Lake, Washington, up to the porch. And she grabbed me, pulled me off the porch, buried my head in her rather ample bosoms. I couldn't breathe. Most delicious suffocation of my life. And then she looked at me, and she said, Bobby, I love you. Three most important words in the world. I'd never heard them before that I remember. They took me bowling. I thought if I could bowl a strike, they would want to adopt me. I bowled all gutter balls. 
They took me to a Chinese restaurant. I thought I could recover the the, the gutter balls by eating with those sticks. I'd never been to a Chinese restaurant, never been to a restaurant, never eaten with sticks. And I, the sticks came together, the food went across the table into the lap of Arnold Peterson, who wasn't excited about adopt because he desperately loved Mary, didn't want to share her with a child. I began to cry. He reached under the table, brought out a balsa wood boat that he had carved, handed it to me, and, that, and she began to cry because that was the signal. If he wanted the boy, he'd give him the boat. And he looked at me and said, would you like to be my son and have my name? All my life, I wanted a name. I'd been a, a winner of Strickland and Edwards of Lee, and they took me home. I still went to bed. I remember the night that I kept to their new home, a beautiful home on the ocean, San Juan Islands of the upper Pacific Northwest, and new, brand new Roy Rogers bunk bed. I was sitting there in my Davy Crockett pajamas next to mom on the bed, and um, I began to cry. I said, Mom, I'm going to wet the bed tonight, and you're not going to love me. My mom put her arm around me, and she said, Bobby, we know you are already that you wet the bed. We put some plastic sheets already under the sheets. And if you wet the bed tonight, it's not going to make any difference. We're still going to love you. For the first time in my life, I went to sleep with peace, 12 years old, woke up that morning the first time in my life in a dry bed. It's been dry ever since. You can ask my wife of 40-some years. And, you know, I went to school the next day, and the kids were making fun of me. You're not a real kid. You're adopted. My first experience with existentialism, I thought I was real. I went home, and I said to Mary, I'm adopted. I'm not real. Mary grabbed me again, buried my head in her bosom, and then she looked at me, and she said, Bobby, you're more special than the rest of those kids. Their parents had to take what they got at the hospital. You're special. You're chosen. We knew who you were, and we chose you the way you are. And years later, at Seattle Pacific University as a freshman, at a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting, I heard that message again. Out of all the people in the universe, God has chosen you. You're special because he sent his son to die for you. And I thought back to my mother looking through that book and seeing that picture say, I want to choose this boy, and the price they paid to adopt me and to love me. They weren't perfect parents. They messed up, I think, with my sister and with me to some extent. They loved me because I was a people pleaser. You love a people pleaser because they live to please you. They, they didn't do so well with my sister, but they taught me something about the gospel. So when you were in college, is that when you actually came to know Christ? When college... I was, I'd heard the gospel all my life. I mean, they took me to church, but it didn't connect until my freshman year of college. Because I believe that that's the moment God sovereignly chose to connect me to him with his, by his Holy Spirit. Yeah, you said earlier that the worst thing you could have done, I don't know, m probably misquoting you, was to, uh, as a people pleaser, enter the ministry. Why did you enter the ministry? Tell us about your call into the ministry. Well, I don't know that I was ever called to the pulpit ministry. I was I, When I graduated from seminary, or from Seattle Pacific, I got a job as a youth pastor in a very large Seattle church, independent Presbyterian church. They had left the Presbyterian denomination, about 400 kids in the youth group. It was heady stuff. 
Andre Crouch and the Disciples sang for us. Larry Norman, John MacArthur came and spoke. Mike Iaconelli, who started Youth Specialties. It was a it was a really great run. The problem is, as in every church, there are two there are two parts of a youth group. There there's the youth group that comes from outside. I was very good at reaching these kids, and there are the, the elders and the deacons' kids. And these the church members have this idea: you're supposed to disciple their children. And I knew how to build the world's biggest banana split and bring a crowd in, but I didn't know much. And so I was, so I remember, I remember the lynch mob was after me. And I remember laying on a beach in Seattle on one of those rare sunny days in the summer, reading Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason, not understanding anything. But I had heard that he taught at Covenant Seminary. And so I thought, you know what? This would be a very neat way to escape the lynch mob. Be very respectable to say God had called you to seminary. So we filled up our Volkswagen, went to seminary in 1971, had some classes with Dr. Schaefer, which was pretty incredible. But it was there that God gave me a call to the ministry. I wanted to preach the gospel. I also, though I didn't have it all worked out then, as I do in my book, Desert Crossings, I had a hunch that God did not want me to waste my life experience, and that the ministry was a way I could touch hurting people. Uh, what I didn't realize, all the dysfunctional things that were in my life, you know, were also going to come into play in the ministry. Bob, you uh, mentioned, I've heard you mention wolves that are in the cellar. I don't know exactly how you put it, but you've come a long way, baby, you know, from uh, from that childhood, that broken childhood, and you have worked through a lot of your life and put things together and have a, an amazing understanding of how God's purposes are working out in your life. But do you still have struggles? You talk about those wolves that they make an appearance once in a while. What do you mean by that? And how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I think that when I use the word wolves, it's another metaphor. Wolves attack. Wolves come to destroy. Jesus speaks about the wolf that comes to destroy the sheep. By the wolf, I mean bad memories, dysfunctional ways of dealing with things. I, I don't believe we ever get fully rid of the wolves that are there, any more than we get rid of the memories that are there. I think what you learn to do is manage the wolves well. You learn to rethink things. You learn to recalibrate. You learn to act in different ways. And there are times you go through long periods of time where the wolves don't howl in the cellar of your soul. They're down there. They're always there. But they sleep for long periods of time. Everything is going wonderfully well in your life. And then something happens. It triggers a bad memory. My mother, when she died, it was such a traumatic thing for me because the, the woman loved me so much. I don't. Sometimes I go days without thinking about her, and I'll watch some rerun of Highway to Heaven, and the tears begin. I'm, I'm sure you have that same experience remembering your own son, you know. And and so and or I'll be in traffic, or I'll be in a situation in the church, and I'll be my back will be against the wall, and that's when it often happens. When our back against the wall, when you're tired, when you're not thinking and you're not on guard, the wolf rises again. And you, from nowhere, the old thing happens again that you thought would never happen again. I think everybody has that experience. What do you do? I think when that happens, you realize it's okay. You, what I do is I, one, I say, God, help me. Put the wolf down. 
I rethink what I'm thinking. The wolf is not real. The wolf can't hurt me. And I ask for a fresh filling. I probably, I believe in one baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I believe in several fillings of the Holy Spirit. I bet you I ask God eight times a day to fill me again with his Holy Spirit. Because we leak. Yeah. <laughs> and so I do a lot of praying. And, I, I, and, and sometimes I have to talk myself down off the ledge. And, and, some, and I have a wonderful wife who sometimes talks me off the ledge. I was going to ask you about that. How much of this do you share with, uh, with your wife when you're hitting one of those, those points where it's all coming back? What role does she play in all of this? Well, you know, oftentimes, you know, I think we all could be honest to say that oftentimes it's actually the wolf comes up when my wife and I are having our issues. And that's when the wolf sometimes comes up. And my wife has wolves in the cellar of her soul. She has her own family issues and her own background. Uh, and for a lot of years, you know, when we tried to, when we were first married and we tried to, you know, shape the other person to be the person we wanted them to be, you know, a lot of couples start out that way. And we didn't understand why we acted the way we did. Frankly, my wife got a, a dysfunctional husband in many ways. And I remember one time early in the ministry, or about 10 years in the ministry, when she said, you know, you're an adulterer. I said, what do you mean? And she says, you have a mistress. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, the mistress is the church. You love the church more than you love me. You want to please the church more than you want to please me. We had to work through that. And so we often talk about why we respond the way we do based on what's there inside of us that makes us respond the way we do. Do you have any men in your life oh, yeah, that, I have, you, that you appeal to? I've always had a group of guys in my life, four or five guys, a covenant group of guys. I had them in New York. I had them in every church I've been in. About 30, I got my first group of guys. I've never been without a group of guys. Guys that I know will love me no matter what. I'll love them no matter what, but we'll be very honest with each other. Are they men in the church? Actually, the group I have now are all men in the church. I'm not afraid of men in the church, but I'm very careful who I choose. Yeah, does it concern you that because you struggle with being a people pleaser that you would open yourself up to that kind of an intimacy with, with other men? By the way, I don't struggle so much with being a people pleaser anymore. I've really learned that that's a losing battle. You can't please people. And I, God has given me real victory in that area. Look, at all, it'll always be there to some extent. When I was a child, I learned very quickly when I went into a home, I learned very quickly to size up quickly to read the family. Who are the dangerous people? Who are the person who's, who, I, who I can manipulate to get what I want? All these different things. It's made me, I've been in 70 countries, and, and it's made me a very good anthropologist as a missionary when I've gone as a missionary to countries to speak. I'm very aware of the audience I'm preaching, speaking to, and their mood and everything. So, so God takes even the bad things that we struggle with, and he, and he turns them for good. You know, uh, but I don't think I'm a people—I really want to please God. I, that's the greatest healing in my life. I really want to please God. I really do. Bob, how do you stay on track to keeping focused on your identity in Christ? Uh, how important is that? And what are some practical things that you do to keep your thoughts focused on what is true? Well, I, um, 
I do a lot of walking every day. I walk about seven miles a day. I do a lot of reflection. I've learned a long time ago not to be afraid of confronting who I am, not to be afraid of the wolves, not to be afraid of criticism, not to be afraid. You know, I welcome critique. I ask for critique with my wife. How do you think I'm doing? What can I do better? My favorite, it comes naturally when you have a millennial daughter like I do, a lawyer. She's often telling me how I can do and be better than I am. And so... Yeah, we have those two. Yes. <laughs> so I really welcome that from the guys. I welcome that from my staff. I really welcome critique. And I think my staff knows that. Doesn't mean I always receive it perfectly well, you know. And I spend a lot of time in the Word. Every day I try to spend time in the Word, looking at who Christ is so I can be like Christ. You know, I don't want to be overly spiritual here, but I do that. I spend a lot of time in prayer. Do you have a favorite passage or do you have a go-to oh, yeah. scripture that... Uh, my best, my favorite passage far and away is First John chapter 3, 1 through 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. The reason the world doesn't know us as it didn't know him. Dear children, you, you are the children of God. And what you will be has not yet been made known, but you know this. When you see him, you will be just like him. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself, even as he's pure. Far and away, my verse for life, that I am a son of the Father, that he's lavished his love on me. And what I am going to be has not yet been fully made known, but I know this. I will look just like him when I see him. It's interesting you pick that verse because we had, when Mark died, we had hundreds and hundreds of people going through the line to support us, to express their sorrow. And there's only one or two that I actually remember what they said to me. And one of them was an, uh, a minister, Baptist minister, who I didn't have much of a relationship with. We just knew of each other in our community. And he came through. He would die just a few years later. He came through and he said, he looked, he looked at me in the eye and he pointed his finger at me. He said, with Jesus, like Jesus. And he walked away. And that's what we put on Mark's grave marker. With Jesus, like Jesus. Because this life's broken. We live in this fallen and this broken world. It's, this is not, we're supposed to f not fit here. Uh, we're supposed to be there's, there's something wrong uh, in the context of the life that we live here because this world is broken. And while you were talking a minute ago, I was thinking of three men. We, we just concluded an interview, uh, a resource for marking ministries on same-sex attraction. These were three men, three Christian men who came out on this resource and when we, when it was one of the most emotional interviews that, that I've ever had the privilege of conduct, conducting, because these men began to unpack their past and sp specifically their relationships to their fathers. And one man in particular who he just, all of a sudden, he just collapsed. He just broke down. He was talking about the one time that he remembers that his father told him that I love you. His father said to him, I love you. And that man remembering that from 30 years 
before and seeing how he's struggling with with his sin temptations in this world, wanting to be the man of God, wanting to be a Christian who really lives out his God's purpose for his life, to see him in that kind of pain because of the memories of the good ones and the bad ones of his father. And specifically recalling that one time that he remembered his dad saying, I love you. It just, it touched all of us. We're sitting there. It just absolutely touched all of us. And you were talking earlier about how your mother responded to you, that you are my son and how your adoptive father responded to you. How would you like to be my son? And I could see, I could see you welling up. I could see it. It's, it's something that you will never, ever forget. So those are some of the good memories that we bring to the front. Am I right? Yes. And you know, and you know, uh, as you share that, I'm amazed that I am healthily heterosexual, having been sodomized, having not had the love of a man. And, and I believe this, that every child between the ages of two and 12 needs to know two things, who I am and identity, and who I am is good. I think of God, how he says of his son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And I was very fortunate. I think the thing that saved my life was to have a father, big fisherman, gruff, tough. When I first got adopted, you know, Pete was his name, big fisherman. And I dressed like him. I, I talked like him. I aped him. We'd walk down the docks to our fishing boat and the other fishermen would be working on their nets. And I'd be right behind my, my dude dad, walking just like him, looking just like him, dressed just like him. And people called him Pete. And, and they would shout out, there goes Pete and his son repeat. And, and I think that that made a huge difference in my life, having a strong man who loved me and, and, and I wanted to be like him. And today I want people to say, here comes Christ and little Christ right behind him. You know, I want to be like my heavenly father. The Mark Inc. team hopes that this story will help turn your heart towards Jesus. Visit markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you can listen or download the resource for free. You'll also find numerous other stories like this that help us navigate the really hard life crises that so many of us experience. Thank you for your support in sharing this story with others.